If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. And we're two political reporters here in D.C. who are going to do something radically different. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping up with the voters who will determine this fall's election in November. Today, we're going to check in with our ground game project. Daniel Malloy is the politics editor at Aussie. He's going to help us connect what's happening between the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination hearings and a Senate race in Missouri. Then we have Patrick McHugh from Priorities USA in the studio. He's the executive director of that Democratic Super PAC. He's going to talk with us about how Democrats are targeting ads to voters of color. Not to be confused with Priorities USA, your fantasy football team. Andrea, let's not focus on that. Take that offline. Let's, let's take that offline. You ready to do this? Let's do it. Okay, it is time for our monthly segment on our ground game races. If you'll remember, that is the 12 races across the country that we are focusing on to tell the story of the 2018 midterms. And to do that, we're gonna bring in Aussie politics editor, Daniel Malloy, and we're gonna talk about what I think is clearly the biggest political story of the moment, the fallout from Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, and what that means in particular for Senate races, for Democrats running in red states in Senate races. Daniel, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, Great to be here, Alex. Let's zoom in here on the fallout of the back and forth over Brett Kavanaugh in one particular race, Uh, Claire McCaskill's reelection in Missouri. It is a battleground race of ours, of course, and arguably the closest, most competitive Senate race in the country right now. And I feel like this confirmation battle is just thrown a hand grenade into the middle of it. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the positioning here, because when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, Josh Hawley, probably more than any other Republican in the country, sort of went on offense against McCaskill and using this in the campaign. She's been wrong on every Supreme Court nominee for the last 11 years. She doesn't represent us. Hawley, a former Supreme Court clerk himself for John Roberts, aggressively framing this debate as, you know, I'm all in for Kavanaugh and we need a conservative on the court. And Claire McCaskill is a typical Democrat obstructing this process and sort of really sort of putting her on the spot on whether or not she would vote for Kavanaugh. And as these allegations started to dribble out, Claire McCaskill ended up saying, I am a no on Brett Kavanaugh, but she didn't do it because of the sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations, what she said was that I'm against him because of his support for dark money, essentially his version of money is speech. And so she made this a campaign finance issue. We actually did get some polling in over the weekend that that shows whether or not this is working for her. So it's a new poll from Missouri Scout. It shows Hawley up by two points over McCaskill, but it also asked, has this confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh made you more likely to vote for Claire McCaskill or less likely? And in fact, 42% said more likely, 49% said less likely. So this is an even wider gap than what she trails Hawley in the race. So it's pretty fascinating how this is all playing out. And just real quick for the listeners, because I don't know if dark money is the kind of term that everyone knows. That is when they're spending by an outside group 
from a nonprofit group that doesn't have to disclose its donors. Right. I mean, that, that, that at least was the original interpretation. I get the sense dark money. That definition is expanding somewhat and probably includes super PAC spending at this point, even though super PACs have to reveal their donors. I mean, to your point, that seemed like a kind of safe issue for her to, to hone in on in, in this debate uh, while maybe avoiding some of the more contentious parts of this. Yeah, that is the case. And Missouri voters have shown to be very supportive of campaign finance reform. This is definitely more solid political ground for her to stand on in opposing Kavanaugh. But there were even were some hints from the left that maybe, hey, she wasn't as strong as she should be in backing up Christine Blasey Ford. And actually, she was asked about this in an editorial board a couple days ago with the St. Louis newspaper. And she basically said, no one can doubt my record on taking down sex offenders because I was a prosecutor and that was my job. So she's sort of leaning on that background to say like, hey, you, you know, no one can accuse me of not being an ally to women who've been sexually assaulted because I put I put these people behind bars. But she basically said, I made up my mind already before this sexual assault allegation came out. Well, so if you are a red state Democrat uh, in another state looking at that poll, 42-49, that would sound like a net negative for her. But Alex, maybe you could shed some light on what the fallout would be from the left if you were to say the opposite on Kavanaugh right now? Well, it's it's a good question, right? Because I, I think we tend to be over overly simple in how we look at politics for someone like Joe Donnelly in Indiana or Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, even Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Look, there are liberals in those states. I, I know, they, they know that that's not what you think of, but there really are liberals. There are diehard Democrats. And there really is a risk when you, you alienate those people, frankly, when you piss those people off. And, and there's really nothing better designed to alienate a diehard Democrat right now than showing support for, for Brett Kavanaugh. And look, maybe with someone like Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin absolutely unloading on his critics. The West Virginia Democrat is being attacked for not voting along party lines. Manchin is Democrats in that state get it at this point. They're used to it. It's not a big surprise. It's what they expect from him. Claire McCaskill doesn't exactly have that reputation. She's not a liberal member of the Senate necessarily, but she is not uh, the sort of like crusading independent that maybe someone like Joe Manchin can better claim. Perhaps like the most dramatic example of that guy Cecil said on Twitter that he would not personally help any candidate who supported Brett Kavanaugh. Current Priorities USA chairman um, and his executive director is actually coming up later on the show. But Guy Cecil ran the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee before. I mean, that's a that's a fairly dramatic statement. His job used to be making sure that Claire McCaskill could win the Senate races in places like Missouri. For him to come out and say that is a pretty dramatic, pretty dramatic statement. Yeah, when you when you see how this is how this is playing out, you know, I think you, you got to keep an eye on not just what the favorable, unfavorable numbers for Kavanaugh are, but kind of intensity. And for a long time, Republicans, conservatives, they cared about the court more. We've talked about that on this show before. That was an animating issue for Republicans. It certainly was in 2016 when Trump put out his list of Supreme Court justices that really helped kind of fire up conservatives. And so now it seems like that liberals and Democrats are getting as excited about the court. And the Kavanaugh thing has really pushed us into overdrive so that it's not just an issue that motivates Republicans anymore. It's an issue that's motivating Democrats, particularly Democratic women, after all that we saw over the past week with Kavanaugh and Christine Ford. You know, Andrea, I feel like we have consistent themes on this show sometimes. And one of them seems to be the last couple of months, we keep coming back this idea that you can't undercut enthusiasm in your own base. 
right, is something that Josh Holmes said uh, was maybe the most important thing to avoid in a midterm election. I think really assessing the full fallout from this is really difficult. You know, it's hard to say how much this will matter in House races, for instance, or other red state Senate races. It seems like it's it's not good for the red state Democrats, but is there a chance that all of this is, is overhyped right now? It's, it, maybe it's overstated right now what we're thinking, but I do think it's really hardening a couple of issues. One, Republicans really struggling with college-educated women, and this is going to sort of drive them away even more to see them rallying behind someone who's been accused uh, of sexual assault. I think it really hurts them uh, with college-educated women. But at the same time, it really is sort of keeping the Trump base together and uniting the Trump base with the sort of broader Republican Party. I think you're seeing sort of the elite Republican opinion coalesce around Kavanaugh as kind of your your classic Republican operative and Bush White House veteran in the same way that you're seeing the Trump base see him as falsely accused and they're going to rally behind him. So it may it may sort of help solidify and, and firm up two bases on on both sides that already were, were pretty fired up and, and affirmed, but this is sort of really kind of cementing the trends we've been seeing already. Well, at minimum, this is going to go on another week into October, but I wanted to read something that our colleague Anita Kumar, who covers the White House, had in her story about this, back to the idea of calculated risk. She has from a, someone close to the White House who said Trump is stood by Kavanaugh in part because he believes it's better to face backlash from female voters than Republican voters overall the biggest damage would be for Republicans to pull away. Well, look, that could be the difference between Democrats even retaking the Senate and instead Republicans winning a few seats here this year. That's how close a lot of these red state races are right now. Yeah, and I think you can see that even when you look at the president's travel schedule, right? I mean, forget the House, save the Senate almost seems to be what, what's going on here when you talk about him being in West Virginia over the weekend. He's going to Tennessee. He's going to Mississippi, which in no normal year should be in play, but is but is on the verge of being in play in a year like this. So you can see it where, where Trump is going. Uh, I, I know, Alex, when you were out in Orange County and Mimi Walter said she'd, she'd love to have Trump come visit, but he ain't going there. Uh, he's going He's going to Johnson City, Tennessee. So that's sort of a good indication of where you see the president and where you see his political advisors saying, we kind of need to triage the Senate right now. Uh, and I think Kavanaugh helps them do that. Daniel, before we let you go, let's talk about another one of our battlegrounds, the Arizona Senate race. The Republican nominee there, Martha McSally, in a very close, very competitive race against Democratic nominee Kristen Sinema. And McSally's approach to Kavanaugh has been um, of note, I think. Why, why don't you explain why? Sort of the biggest pivot point in this whole process it came in on Friday when, when Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, who is retiring, basically prolonged this whole process by a week saying he wanted an FBI investigation and sort of helped slow this down and, and sort of see where we went. You know, he's retiring. He's not running again. But to fill his seat, the Republican Martha McSally is in one of the closest races in the country against uh, Kirsten Cinema, And uh, McSally basically had flakes back here. She said she would support fully vetting this and sort of getting to the bottom of it. And, and McSally is interesting as well because she has been very public that she herself has been a victim of sexual assault. So you see this positioning, you know, whereas we talk about Republicans really sort of rallying behind Kavanaugh, you know, here's an instance in a Senate race, in a tough Senate race, where you have someone trying to find that middle ground and, and even following Jeff Flake, who is who's gotten a lot of uh, 
a lot of blowback from the right for for this uh, surprising turn that he made on Friday. And I think it would be proper to delay the floor vote in order to let the FBI to do an investigation limited in time and scope uh, to the current allegations that are there. Well, I'd guess her coalition does consist of some independent women voters. Maybe in Arizona. It's a fascinating discussion, Daniel, and I agree with you that the implications of this are going to ripple on for the next month until Election Day. We don't really know how things are going to play out. Of course, uh, we'll have to have you back on to talk about maybe when we know more uh, just before the election. Daniel, thank thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here as always, Alex. You know, Andrea, the, the politics of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation could change even radically by the end of the week. The Senate is still expected to take a vote on Friday, uh, to at least to begin the confirmation process. Yeah, although, you know, in a week um, of an investigation into everything from his college days, I'm not sure how that gets better for Republicans between now and then. You know, as this process drags out, it just gets worse and worse for his confirmation prospects and also for the prospects for the GOP uh, as we head toward November 6th. So before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about something pretty cool going on in one of our McClatchy newsrooms. Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. So for our next segment today, we wanted to bring in Patrick McHugh from Priorities USA, one of the biggest spenders on the left, raising a lot of money, just like other Democrats across the map this cycle, also home to a lot of former Senate strategists. And this week in Washington, we are perhaps thinking about the Senate map in ways that we have not before. Patrick, could you start us off here by giving us a a rundown of how you view the landscape of the Senate map going into the final month here? Look, I think if you were to tell me... uh a year and a half ago or two years ago, the Senate would be in play, given the map that we are facing. I would have laughed at you probably. I think that you know, if you take a look at where we are today, we are running even or ahead in uh, a number of states where Trump won by double digits. There have been a number of Republican operatives who have claimed that they have seen an uptick in Republican enthusiasm. Um, Even assuming that is true for a moment, which I have not seen evidence of in terms of our private polling. Emphasize that point. In your own polling, you haven't seen any uptick in enthusiasm? We have yet to see an uptick in enthusiasm. But even assuming that's true, any uptick that I assume they're seeing essentially takes them from the gutter to the floor. Meanwhile, we're on basically the 20th floor, and we haven't seen a fluctuation in that number for many months. And I don't buy the argument that the Kavanaugh hearings somehow uh, depresses that number. If anything, it further invigorates our base to turn out and make their voices heard in this election. In those really red states, who's the X factor? Which voters are going to determine this election? Right. So, I mean, I think number one is obviously we have to turn out every single voter in our base, but also we have to persuade a certain segment, including some Trump voters, to vote for our candidate. In several of these races, we have uh, succeeded so far in doing that. Our challenge, of course, is to keep a certain segment of Trump voters supporting our Democratic candidates. And I think one of the things you're seeing uh, across the map right, um, is that healthcare is continually the number one issue with voters, including with these voters who voted for Trump and are now voting for a Democratic incumbent senator. And that makes sense if you think about it, because with Trump, one of the things Trump campaigned on was lowering the cost of health care and expanding coverage. 
he has gone backwards on both. Uh, voters are angry. Um, they want um, their representatives to address the issue, and the Republican candidates in each one of these races um, uh, want to do the opposite. They want to increase costs, and they want to uh, take away coverage from people who currently have it. Um, and so that has been a, continuing to be a salient issue across the board. Would a Trump voter and Democratic Senate voter be somebody who is not voting for Trump again, somebody who's already disillusioned, or somebody who still likes Trump? Look, I mean, I think there's certainly a certain segment of those voters who still like Trump. But I think some of the work that we did right after the 2016 election showed this too, and I think we're starting to see it play out. Um, and that's that there is a large segment of people who voted for Donald Trump who didn't feel all that comfortable doing so, but did it anyway. Uh, let me let me ask you, just in a big picture sense, you still are holding out hope that Democrats can take the Senate majority? Yes. How likely do you think that is? Oh, I don't want to give percentages, but I think, you know, honestly, like if you ask me, given the fact that where we are entering this stretch, it makes me feel uh, pretty good about where we stand. Let me talk about something broadly challenging Democrats right now, um, trying to engage with voters of color. Yep. It's not a new not a new challenge for the Democratic Party, but is obviously such a critical piece of the, the party's coalition, a critical piece for a lot of battleground candidates mm-hmm. uh, trying to defeat Republicans. How has that gone this cycle? Have there been unique challenges? Has it been any easier this cycle than past cycles? Because the sense I get from some Democrats is for as much energy as there is in the Democratic Party, in certain parts of the coalition, uh, maybe particularly Hispanic voters, it is kind of the same challenge that they've had in previous cycles. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge still remains. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that... You know, what we see is a whole segment of our base um, who are naturally motivated to turn out because of Donald Trump. We're seeing that in races across the country. Our challenge to win uh, in these red states and also, frankly, to ensure that we expand our majority in the House as much as we possibly can is to not convince those voters to turn out because they're already going to turn out, especially after what they just saw in the last couple of weeks. I mean, before we move, do you mind who, who are those voters who are naturally pumped up? Well, I think, vote? for example, you're seeing that uh, women um, mm-hmm. are or Democratic voters are extremely enthusiastic about turning out to vote mm-hmm. in this election. This last week has only increased that enthusiasm, um, I think. Uh, and so our challenge, right, is to uh, make sure that we're communicating to voters, including voters of color, who are not automatically um, motivated to turn out and vote to send Donald Trump a message. And that our research has continuously shown from the work we did in Alabama and also some research that we did with Color of Change, um, an organization on the progressive side, that there is a large segment of voters, particularly uh, millennial uh, voters of color, who are not automatically motivated to turn out uh, because of Donald Trump. And in fact, in many ways, see the election of Donald Trump as another proof point in why voting doesn't matter. Well, I was going to ask you, because you and I have talked about this before, why is that? Why aren't they uh, as charges other parts of the Democratic coalition. Right. I mean, they certainly hate Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. They think he's racist. They don't have favorable views of him. But they fundamentally think that the, the participating in the system by voting, especially in a midterm election, will bring about no change to the system. And in fact, their voice doesn't matter. And the reason why Donald Trump is a proof point to that is because an openly racist individual uh, who ran largely a campaign uh, based on sowing division got elected president right after the election of Barack Obama. 
Um, and that is the country's reaction in some ways to the um, two terms of Barack Obama. Well, that's a fascinating so, point because, I mean, the election of Donald Trump for so many was energizing, but for this part of the electorate, it was it was the opposite. And I understand the logic right. of it. It's just, it's not something that's really gotten us a lot of coverage uh, from people like me at Andrew. I know. Yeah. Well, well, and well, are they right and to win a popular election but still lose the presidency? Are right. they right that their vote doesn't matter? Right. You have to convince people that, that taking the action of voting will result in change directly in your community. And I think that's one of the challenges that we face and that we're focusing a lot of our investment and resources on. I mean, Patrick, you're talking about what I think is the rarest of all things, positive ads? Yeah. Positive ads? Yeah. Because, I mean, again, you and I had talked, you had said that this was key in Alabama yeah. uh, to motivating a lot of voters was presenting a positive vision for the country. That's right. You know, we ran a just on African American turnout in Alabama. We ran a one million dollar campaign just online. Don't think it mentioned Trump at all. If it did, it was very much in passing. And the vast majority of that was around positive messaging about Doug Jones and what kind of change, particularly around education, that he would bring mm-hmm. uh, to the state. And a lot of the research we've shown, and a lot of the ads that we are currently running now, as a result, have shown that there are several barriers that people say towards wanting to participate in the system. Um, one of which is they don't believe their vote matters. Um, that they don't believe it would actually result in any change. And so we have to convince people that it does matter. And another thing is that people don't believe that they have the knowledge necessary to vote and that we are seeking to provide them additional information where necessary on where the candidates stand on important issues like health care and education, um, not necessarily Donald Trump. Does that mean a focus on local candidates too? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly part of it. You know, I think that we have seen a pretty amazing and important surge in interest in the progressive space and supporting candidates down ballot. Um, and I think that that is going to pay dividends, I hope, on Election Day. We're already seeing in several elections, special elections before this, uh, that, um, that there has been a surge in enthusiasm, even for state legislative candidates down ballot, um, which is extremely important to rebuilding our party, and I'm glad it's happening. There was a sense after 2016 that Democrats didn't do nearly enough and online advertising that the GOP had leapfrogged uh, the party there. Do you think that that gap is closing? I think the gap is closing, but it's still open. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, if you take a look, for example, today, Google has started producing a transparency report where they list the top spenders on federal races. The top 10 spenders uh, in that list are all Republican organizations and super PACs, except for two. Uh, that is Priorities USA through our partnership with Senate Majority PAC and Senate races and Beto in Texas. Patrick, can you explain that to me? Because there are are a couple of points. One, I mean, Democrats just naturally have more reason to reach out to younger voters who live online Mm -hmm. um, because that's who's in their coalition. And two, I mean, look, for a long time through the Obama era, Democrats really prided themselves, frankly, on doing this better Mm -hmm. than Republican operatives. And and I think really deep in their bones believe that they did. What what happened here that, that Democrats could have this, what appears to be a very obvious blind spot? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think... Uh, it's a challenge when we face the other side that is uh, more well-funded. And I think that as a result, you have campaigns and oftentimes progressive outside groups that have to make decisions when they see us being outspent on TV. It is a hard decision to make as an organization or campaign, especially a campaign, to say, we're going to allow ourselves to get outspent on television and instead ensure that we don't get outspent on digital. Um, I think all too often that is the... Uh, the sort of view that a lot of campaign managers and uh, people who are in charge of running programs on the progressive side face. I think all too often they are prone to make the wrong choice. Look, the Republicans take a more corporate view of how to market to people, how to communicate to people. Corporate America spends roughly 30% of their media budgets in terms of marketing online. Um, you know, We uh, have for a very long time struggled to get out of the single digits. 
Uh, and so uh, that's why this cycle we have chosen to invest all of our um, resources into digital only. We're not doing any television. And then we are partnering with groups like Senate Majority PAC and House Majority PAC and others to run really uh, big, robust campaigns. They're going to result in uh, record-breaking, for our side, record-breaking investments on digital. What do you think about that overall campaign? I saw a figure recently that they had spent something like $4.5 million on digital ads, and the Cruise campaign had spent like 300000 But is it normal to invest all of your money in digital ads like that? Two things. Number one is not. I don't think anybody who is worth their salt would say that you should invest all of your money in digital or all of your money in TV. That is sort of the wrong um, way to look at it, nor would I say to any campaign, that they, any regardless of where the campaign is, they should invest 30% of their money on digital. It depends on the voters you're trying to reach. I think one of the things you're seeing in Texas, though, is that uh, obviously uh, Beto's, one of Beto's strengths is the fact that he's raising so much money online from individuals in small amounts. The way he's doing that is, uh, is frankly, to advertise to people and acquire new names to, to his network and get them to contribute money to the campaign. And so that's why they're spending so much on digital, because um, a part of that is not necessarily persuasion or turnout. It's fundraising. But also, if you take a look at, in terms of who is spending on TV in a Texas Senate race, I don't know if it's true today, but for a very long time, I bet it was actually ha- had more points on TV than Ted Cruz. And one of the things we have to remember is that candidates get better TV rates than outside groups. That is not true on digital. Everybody gets the same rate. Yeah, another reason sense. why Priorities USA should invest in digital. <laughs> right. If you're at that rate, exactly. it can, be a, can make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So it makes more sense for campaigns to invest uh, on television because their money goes further because they get more points out of the, out of the dollar that they spend. Uh, hey, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you guys for having me. So, Andrea, I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but you know, here is this veteran, allegedly jaded political operative talking about the importance of positive ads uh, of all things. It's not usually what you hear from a, a political strategist from either party. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to be inundated with positive ads this fall. It's going to be so <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> such, such a good point. Priorities might be on an island with that, which is not to say that they're not right. They're not effective. But don't expect to see a lot of positive ads on your TV set or on Facebook or online this November and October. Rats. So it is time for the lightning round. And remember, this will be timed. Andrea, you, the listener, can hear the TikTok. You have 30 seconds to tell us something we don't know that we should. Go ahead. All right. Our investigative team over at McClatchy has done some extensive reporting on the NRA and the money that they spent trying to influence the 2016 election. Overlooked a little bit in that, how little they've spent on the 2018 election. Um, Our colleague Alex Doherty, who covers Miami, had a great story this week about how in that race they're actually suing the GOP's candidate, uh, Rick Scott, and have spent almost nothing to help him. That is is really fascinating. Not something that's getting, I think, enough attention. Props to Doc, as we call him, for highlighting that. Okay, I'm up. Uh, I just want to call attention to the fact, uh, given this is our Battleground episode, that one of our Battleground races at California 10, the Democratic nominee there, Josh Harder, raised $3.5 million in the third quarter. That's bonkers, folks. That is a crazy number. And it's actually something we're seeing from a lot of House Democratic candidates. Patrick alluded to it. They're raising crazy amounts of money. It's going to have a huge effect on November. And it's just another thing that's maybe pushing Democrats toward something like winning the House majority. Good time to be a TV journalist. <laughs> the TV stations are going to rack, rack in the dough. Really, if I would, if I could just take a moment to tell campaigns, print advertising in newspapers and digital advertising in newspapers, the best way to reach voters. The reliable voting base that reads their newspaper. Absolutely. Give us your money. Uh, all right, Andrea, this was a pleasure as always. This was fun. 
Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.